Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on trauma-informed screening and assessment. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this presentation, we're going to discuss why screening is important and why screening must be trauma-informed, even if you're not screening for trauma. So we're going to talk about, well, two different things today, screening for trauma, but also using trauma-informed screenings and why both are important. We'll briefly learn about the three types of prevention. We'll define trauma, traumatic injury, PTSD, and CPTSD, or complex PTSD. We'll discuss the preventative impact of screening and assessment for adverse childhood experiences, trauma, mental health issues, and addictions, review some effective screening practices, and the 16 principles of trauma-informed care. In the notes to this video, I have included a lot of the references. If you're taking this for CEUs, you will be able to uh, access the PDF of the PowerPoint and click on the hyperlinks to go to all of the references. A lot of this is based on the SAMHSA tip on trauma-informed care, but there's also a lot that's based on updated research because that tip came out quite a while ago. And as you know, when I do re-record or record videos, I always like to make sure I try to get you the most up-to-date information. So why do we need to care about trauma-informed screening? Well, the lifetime prevalence of any potential trauma has been found to be about 80.7%. Now, that's a big number. And if you think about experiences in your lifetime, you may have experienced trauma. You may not have developed uh, PTSD or CPTSD, uh, but you may have experienced trauma. So it's important to recognize that the majority of people are going to experience some trauma in their life, and that trauma can be triggered in the future. The lifetime prevalence of PTSD is 8.3%, so almost 1 in 10 people. The prevalence of complex PTSD in 11 to 19-year-olds, so we're looking at that adolescent bracket right there, not everybody, is 3.4%. So you know, roughly uh, one out of every 22. That's a, still a pretty staggeringly high number. The prevalence of adverse childhood experiences is 61.55 uh, for people having at least one, and about a quarter of people report three or more adverse childhood experiences. Now, you can see here that even with three or more adverse childhood experiences, it doesn't guarantee you're going to develop the symptoms that meet criteria for diagnosis of CPTSD or PTSD. But I think it's really, really important that we don't get too caught up in diagnostic thresholds, that we notice when something is having a negative impact and intervene early, that early prevention, early intervention is going to make a whole host of difference. Think about when you get sick, when you start to notice that you've got the sniffles or something going on, you can ignore it and wait and see if you end up getting sick and then you can continue to ignore it until you've got pneumonia and you have to go to the hospital or you can notice, hey, I'm starting to get sick. Maybe I ought to eat a little healthier, make sure I get some rest, you know, do whatever you do in order to try to help your immune system. Trauma is associated with the development of a range of physical and mental health disorders, which also 
translate into other problems in relationships, in the ability to maintain stable housing, and the ability to work full-time. So we do want to recognize the interconnectedness. Autoimmune disorders, which are typically triggered by stress or can be worsened by stress, polycystic ovarian syndrome, they found a really high correlation between women who have PCOS and women who have experienced trauma. There's a really high correlation between ongoing trauma, especially CPTSD or untreated PTSD and the development of PCOS. So that's really interesting. Cardiovascular diseases. I just did a video the other day on high blood pressure, cardiovascular diseases, and mood. And we are starting to understand that the physiological changes that take place as a result of unresolved trauma contribute to systemic inflammation and greatly increase the risk of mental health and physical disorders, including cardiovascular. Addictive disorders, including substance misuse, food addiction, and internet addiction. And you can go to these different links and actually look at these. Now, yes, in the DSM-5-TR, food addiction and internet addiction are not actual DSM diagnoses. However, in the research, the, the researchers have recognized, just like with pathological gambling, there is a, and, and um, gaming addiction, there is a place to identify the unhelpful use of food or internet and to the, to the point that it reaches what we would consider an addiction. A whole different video, but... Interestingly, one of the articles pointed out, and it makes sense, that people who abuse substances especially often do so as a means of trying to basically dissociate or numb the pain of the trauma, numb the memories, quiet the noise. Mood disorders are significantly associated with the development of trauma. They've looked at people who have PTSD and they've found that more often than not, they also meet all of the criteria for one or more mood disorders. Personality disorders. And this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I am very passionate about personality disorders because these are behaviors and ways of relating that develop in childhood as a result, most times, of trying to adapt to or cope with or survive, guess what? Trauma. Suicide attempts and impaired educational performance are also strongly associated with a history of trauma. No matter what um, area you're working in, if you are in social services, if you are an uh, endocrinologist, if you're a family practice physician, if you're a nurse, if you're a counselor, if you're a teacher or a pastor, you may encounter somebody who's presenting with one or more of these issues. I know a lot of people, for example, will see clergy for pastoral counseling. Um, and it's important to recognize that if they're presenting with one issue, we need to be aware that there may be some other underlying stuff that is contributing to those symptoms. Given the prevalence of trauma and the diversity of associated issues, we can pretty confidently say that a trauma-informed approach may prevent re-victimization. We don't want people to come to us, whoever us is, for help, and then we engage with them in a way that is uh, dismissive, demeaning, or traumatizing. We need to make sure they feel safe, heard, and empowered. And you're going to hear me say that repeatedly throughout the day today. A trauma-informed approach can also provide early identification for prevention of additional related issues. If we can identify a trauma history, if we can identify a child, for example, who's experiencing adverse childhood experiences, uh, 
we can provide support and early intervention to prevent them, hopefully, from developing addictions, depression, autoimmune issues, chronic pain, whatever the case may be. A trauma-informed approach will also help us improve treatment outcomes by addressing additional underlying causes of symptoms. When somebody experiences trauma, and especially if it goes on unaddressed or inadequately addressed, there are changes, changes in the body, changes in the brain, changes in the nervous system, and no amount of talk therapy or whatever else, nutritional therapy or what have you, is going to completely address those issues. We need to help them heal their nervous system, what what I'm going to refer to as the HPA axis or the threat response system. So if we recognize the how trauma and HPA axis dysregulation may be contributing to some of these symptoms, we can also address that. We can make the treatment plan more effective. Trauma-informed care helps us recognize the function of symptoms to prevent pathologizing them. What is the function of emotional dysregulation? You know, you look at it from a clinical standpoint and you're like, it seems to not have a lot of function, but it does. Emotional dysregulation is what happens when the nervous system, when that HPA axis gets dysregulated and the person when they experience a threat, instead of having a little bit, a trickle of stress hormones to give them energy to fight or flee, they have this tsunami. Their body responds in, a, in an extreme fashion. So we can recognize that part of it is neurological. Part of it is their body responding differently. But part of it, emotional dysregulation, when they feel a threat and they go into terror or rage, that is a protective mechanism. They're fighting or fleeing. They're trying to survive. We also can use a trauma-informed approach to assist providers, medical, mental health, clergy, teachers, the whole list I went through, in creating environments that promote a sense of safety and recovery. Safety, empowerment, and feeling heard is so important because during the trauma, the person didn't feel safe. They did feel powerless, and they certainly did not feel heard. Trauma-informed screening and trauma-informed care can also help break the intergenerational cycle of illness. And I'm going to be doing videos on that in the near future on intergenerational trauma. But it's important to recognize if you've got caregivers who are having difficulty dealing with life, difficulty dealing with their trauma, it puts the child at risk. We know Adverse childhood experiences is when a child is exposed to abuse, neglect. If there is somebody in the household that has, especially a caregiver, that has a mood disorder or an addictive disorder, or if the child is abandoned in some way. And so by its very definition, having a caregiver who has untreated uh, ACEs, untreated trauma, is likely going to negatively impact the child and the child can pass that on. Now, it doesn't have to be that way, but remember, I keep saying untreated, uncontrolled. So there are three types of prevention. For those of you who aren't aware, we're just going to go through them real quick. Primary prevention, you don't want to ever have the problem. Providing people with the health literacy they need, the information they need to prevent major depression, to prevent the development of addiction, to prevent the development of chronic pain or diabetes, or even, dare I say, to prevent exposing children to adverse childhood experiences. Now, that is one of those lofty goals. The ability of us, of our society right now to completely prevent these things is pretty small, but we're working toward it. We are gaining more information. We're starting to understand about the many different causes of these things and trying to figure out, okay, how can we not only treat, but also prevent? 
Secondary prevention prevents the problem from getting worse. So the person develops major depression, addiction, chronic pain, diabetes, or they're experiencing ACEs or experienced ACEs. Okay. So they are seeing us right now. They are where, wherever you are that they're connecting with you. How can we help them maintain where they're at right now and not get worse? How can we keep uh, the major depression from becoming worse? How can we keep the addiction from becoming worse? Ideally, help them get better. But we secondary prevention prevents it from getting worse. And tertiary prevention prevents additional problems caused by the primary presenting problem. So for example, if the person experienced trauma, preventing them from also developing depression and addiction. If they had adverse childhood experiences, preventing the development of CPTSD and autoimmune issues. So you can see how trauma may be the underlying issue. And there's lots of other things that may develop as a result of that trauma that we can prevent if we address the trauma. Screening is one of the best ways to engage in prevention and, uh, well, in prevention activities. Some people call secondary prevention uh, early intervention, whatever you call it where you're at. Screening is super helpful. Anybody can screen. Screening is not diagnosis. Screening is not treatment. Screening is just a, a rudimentary assessment. So we want to screen for adverse childhood experiences in not only children, but in adults to see if they experienced them because that may impact their treatment course and in caregivers of children, because if the caregiver experienced ACEs, then that may impact their, uh, the way they interact with the child. We want to screen for other types of trauma, both physical, like medical trauma, and psychological. We want to screen for mental health issues, addictions, sleep disorders, pain, and nutrient deficiencies. Now, with the exception of nutrient deficiencies, as clinicians, we can screen for a lot of these and help people address them. A lot of these things, as I've already mentioned, may develop as a result of trauma. Likewise, a lot of these things may exist for people and contribute to experiencing trauma. So it can go both ways and we need to recognize how those things interact. Now, obviously for nutrients, that's a blood test. A doctor's the only one that's going to do that. But being aware that vitamin D deficiencies, anemia, thyroid problems, or imbalances in, in sex hormones like estrogen and testosterone can contribute to mood disorders and physical health issues. Likewise, as I mentioned with PCOS, chronic stress can contribute to the to the imbalance in gonadal hormones and thyroid hormones. We see people who have uh, complex PTSD have a much higher rate of hypothyroid, and, for example, and PCOS. So it's important to understand that there may be a bunch of things that are contributing to this person's symptoms. Now let's talk about some definitions really quick. Trauma. It, as I mentioned, over 80% of people will experience trauma in their lifetime. And I would argue it's probably 100, but, you know, we'll go with what the research says. Trauma is an event that is experienced by the person as horrific and causes a feeling of being unsafe and powerless. So think about uh, things that you've experienced as traumatic. And it's important to remember that what is traumatic differs on the individual, whether they've had prior similar traumas, um, their age, their ability to fend for themselves, whether during that experience they felt safe, heard, and empowered or not. 
Abandonment or neglect, especially in childhood, is traumatic. The child can't take care of themselves. And if the one person who's supposed to care for them just doesn't, then yeah, that's traumatic. That's terrifying. Victimization, you know, that's pretty obviously traumatic. Car accidents can be traumatic, especially if it's a really bad car accident. If somebody has a heart attack, that can be traumatic for them. You know, wow, you know, I almost died. It can also be traumatic for their loved ones who are looking at them going, oh my gosh, you almost died. That's, that's terrifying. And natural disasters and pandemics also may promote a sense of hopelessness, helplessness, unsafeness, not being heard. So we want to recognize that there are a lot of things that can be perceived as traumatic. And it's not, uh, we just need to be cautious that we don't dismiss somebody's experience because it wasn't traumatic for us. We don't dismiss their experience as being traumatic. Traumatic injury, as I'll use it today, is when the experience of that trauma causes physical or mental health injuries. In the DSM-5-TR, we have acute stress disorder, and that's when the person has a set of symptoms right after a traumatic event that lasts for up to a month, but then that generally resolves. Most people who develop acute stress disorder don't go on to develop PTSD, but some do, okay? So it's important to recognize that not everybody who experiences trauma has what, what you might consider trauma is injured from it, if you will. And not everybody with traumatic injury goes on to develop PTSD or CPTSD. Now, PTSD is an exposure to an extremely threatening or horrific event or series of events resulting in re-experiencing of the event, avoidance of thoughts and memories of the event, and persistent perceptions of heightened current threat that lasts for more than four weeks and, and this is the key here, and causes significant impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. We need to recognize that behavior exists on a continuum, okay? And it, while somebody may have... Um, sub-threshold symptoms of PTSD, other people may have diagnostic level or, you know, super threshold uh, symptoms of PTSD. It doesn't mean we should ignore the person that has sub-threshold symptoms. They just wouldn't qualify for that PTSD diagnosis if you're, you know, staying to the letter of the diagnosis. But we, we shouldn't dismiss those symptoms. We need to help them understand their symptoms and figure out, okay, what can I do to prevent this from getting worse, to prevent this from becoming PTSD, to prevent this from triggering other issues like autoimmune or uh, depression or anxiety or agoraphobia or who knows what else. Now, CPTSD, complex PTSD, it is not still not listed in the DSM-5-TR, our basic diagnostic manual in the U.S. However, in the ICD-11, which is what most other countries use, it is. And I do have a whole video on the diagnosis of CPTSD using the ICD-11. In summary, CPTSD involves an exposure to an event or series of events of an extremely threatening or horrific nature most commonly prolonged or repetitive, from which escape is difficult or impossible. And that's a new little phrase that's added to the PTSD criteria. All diagnostic requirements for PTSD have to be met. Okay. In addition, complex PTSD is characterized by severe and persistent problems in affect regulation, or what some people call emotional dysregulation. Severe and persistent beliefs about oneself as defeated or worthless, accompanied by feelings of shame, guilt, or failure related to that traumatic situation, and 
difficulties in sustaining relationships and in feeling close to others, which causes significant impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. There's that, that, that continuum again that we need to respect, but we also need to respect if somebody's having emotional dysregulation issues, we don't want to just ignore it. We need to <clears throat> recognize it and attend to it so it doesn't become something worse. The other pet issue that I guess I will bring up here is that in the ICD-11, it very clearly states additional diagnoses should only be made if the symptoms are not fully accounted for by CPTSD and all diagnostic requirements for each disorder are met. Why is that a pet issue of mine? Because too often I have people come talk to me and they have been, they've seen other clinicians and they have a litany of diagnoses. They have ADHD, BPD, um, PTSD, CPTSD, anxiety, depression. I mean, literally they may come and they may have four or five or six different diagnoses. If it were me and a clinician gave me this, you know, basket of diagnoses, I'd feel traumatized. I feel even more hopeless and helpless because it's like, oh my gosh, look at how many different things are wrong with me. However, in a lot of those cases, those other diagnoses are unnecessary because all of the symptoms are adequately explained by the problems with affect regulation, the beliefs about oneself as worthless and feelings of shame or guilt or failure, and difficulties in sustaining relationships. So we do need to take a look at that and explore whether adding additional diagnoses is necessary, is appropriate, and the impact that it might have on an individual. So what is screening? I've talked about how it's kind of rudimentary, but what are we talking about here? Screening is a brief evaluation done to determine if there might be a need for further evaluation. Screening is not assessment. In addiction, we have something called the CAGE, which is an addiction screening questionnaire. There are four questions. C stands for, have you had difficulty cutting down or stopping use? A, are you annoyed when people talk to you about your use? G, do you feel guilty for your use? And E, do you need an eye-opener when you get up in the morning in order to feel like you can function? Obviously, if a person says yes to one of those, they may have an addiction. However, they may not. This is not a diagnostic tool. This is not an assessment tool. It's a screening. And if they say yes, then we can say, hmm, you know, you might want to go talk to a counselor or your physician about whether there's something more to this. Other examples of screening are the monthly breast self-exams that women are supposed to do. And if you do this self-exam and you find that something feels a little off, it doesn't mean you necessarily have breast cancer. It means there's something that needs to be assessed. And diabetes screening is the same way. We can ask a bunch of questions that relate to the symptoms of diabetes, and if the person says yes, then we might say, hmm, probably ought to go talk to your doctor or an endocrinologist and have them actually measure your blood sugar and your A1C to see if it's an issue. So screening is not diagnosis, which is why anybody can do screening, and we're going to talk about how we can make screening more available uh, to the average person as we go through this? Well, maybe now. Who can do screening? As I said, anybody. Individuals can self-screen. There are a lot of screening tools on the internet. Not all of them are good, but there are a lot of screening tools on the internet. It is important, vital, crucial 
If you are doing screening, especially if you are doing screening with some unknown instrument that you recognize that it may be nothing, you're screening and if there, it identifies that there might be an issue, okay, there might be, but not to assume that there's this huge problem. Public service ads and announcements can also be helpful for screening. Back in the day, <laughs> when I was younger, we used to have these public service announcements where somebody like a, a, a news anchor would talk about their experience with depression and identify four symptoms of depression. And if you have any of these, you know, talk to a doctor. So that was a 30 minute public, 30 minute, 30 second public service announcement that helped people do a really quick mini screening. Today, we don't really have a lot of PSAs and a lot of people don't watch TV with commercials anymore. So having screenings that are available, dare I say, on social media uh, can also be helpful because people, when they're scrolling through shorts um, or TikTok or something else, if they see this, they're able to do a brief rapid screening and figure out if there's something that they may need to be aware of. And another one that I love and I would love to see, I've never actually seen it, is printing screening questions on the bottom of receipts, like grocery receipts, where your grocery store says, in honor of Depression Awareness Week, here are, here's a depression screening. Now, not everybody looks at their receipts, but some people do. So that might be another way to reach the person who doesn't go to the health fairs, who doesn't pay attention to um, pop-up ads or TikTok videos or whatever. Medical personnel, including you know, LPNs, CNAs, can do screening. Mental health personnel, clergy, teachers, social service workers, like the people who are working in the Social Security office or the EBT or TANF office and corrections officers, people who are in jail or have been arrested often, and you may say more often than not, but often have a history of trauma. They may have some current mental health or medical conditions that are related to that trauma, but corrections officers can do a screening. And if we start addressing these things, early, then when the person is released, their chances of recidivism, theoretically, are significantly reduced. So creating an effective screening and assessment environment is also important. Remember, people need to feel safe, heard, and empowered. We want to clarify for the person what to expect in the screening and the assessment process. We want to approach them in a matter-of-fact yet supportive manner. This is what's going on. This is what I'm seeing. You know, take what's useful, leave the rest. We want to respect the person's personal space. We don't want to be all up in their business. And that includes cognitive and emotional. If they don't want to go there, okay, we need to respect that unless there's some organizational reason that we can't. But I can't think of any situation where we wouldn't be able to say, you know what, you don't have to answer that question if it makes you uncomfortable. We need to provide culturally appropriate symbols of safety in the physical environment. Be aware of our own emotional responses to hearing people's trauma histories. And make sure we overcome linguistic barriers via an interpreter. Now, that's not the ideal situation because not if they're talking about trauma, a lot of people uh, are dealing with shame and guilt and uh, other issues. So it's hard enough to tell one person, let alone two people. But it's important to recognize that some things uh, are easier to say in your native language. There may not be an exact translation into English. We want to elicit only the information necessary for determining a history of trauma and the possible existence and extent of traumatic stress symptoms and related disorders. It's important that we don't 
start opening that can of worms right now. We need to find out, have you experienced trauma? And might it be related to what you're experiencing right now? But they don't, they haven't been prepared with the tools to deal with processing that. And you probably don't have the time to adequately and ethically process it in whatever time period you've got. If a person wants to tell their trauma story, it's our job, whoever's doing the screening, to serve as a gatekeeper and preserve that person's safety, to help them recognize that, or that you hear them, that they have something that they really want to talk about and it's really causing them a lot of distress. And in this situation at this time, there's not the ability to effectively deal with those things. And you don't want them to open that can of worms and feel left unsupported. So you want to make sure that when they process that, they have all the skills and tools they need. Your tone of voice when suggesting postponement of a discussion of trauma is very important. Avoid conveying the message, yeah, I don't really want to hear about that. It's important to convey to them, oh my gosh, I hear how much you're hurting and I want to make sure that we do this in the right way so you can have a positive treatment outcome. Give the person as much personal control as possible during the assessment by presenting a rationale for the interview and making clear that the client has the right to refuse to answer any questions. Give the person the option of being interviewed by someone of the gender with which they are most comfortable and postpone the interview if necessary. If they are feeling overwhelmed, you may need to postpone the interview. Use self-administered written checklists rather than interviews when possible to assess trauma. As I mentioned, all we're trying to figure out is did it exist? Did, did they experience a trauma? How frequently and kind of what was the intensity? But we're not getting into the details right now. So using paper pencil can keep from opening that, that can of worms. And since there is often guilt and shame associated with it, uh, it's, it can be, you're, you're more likely to get accurate information if you use those self-administered checklists. Allow time for the person to become calm and oriented to the present if they have a very intense emotional response when recalling or even acknowledging a trauma. Avoid phrases that imply judgment about or minimize the experience of the trauma. For example, don't say to somebody who survived a natural disaster and lost family members, it was God's will, or it was their time to pass, or it was meant to be. How dismissive are those things? And in your heart, you may feel like that's comforting, but for others that may be, feel extremely dismissive of their anger and, and their feelings of powerlessness at this current situation. We want to provide feedback about the results of the screening, keeping in mind the client's vulnerability, their ability to access resources their strengths, and their coping strategies. If somebody is a single parent and they're working two jobs and we say, hey, I think, you know, day treatment might be good for you. Three hours a day, three hours a day, four days a week. That's not realistic. So we need to be aware of what resources they can and cannot access. Do they even have insurance? Can they access mental health care? And what free or sliding scale or state-sponsored resources are available to them. Be aware of the possible legal implications of assessment. Information gathered can necessitate mandatory reporting to authorities, even when the person does not want such information disclosed. So whether you're doing screening or assessment, if you are a mandatory reporter, which most of those people I listed are, you need to be aware of when you do need to make a mandatory report. Explain screening and assessment, and if appropriate, the pacing of the initial intake and evaluation process. Offer psychoeducational support from the outset. Tell them about what the conditions are that you're screening for and the fact that any symptom can potentially have a whole variety of causes 
risk factors, and prevention tools. So if you're having a sleep, sleep disorders, okay, there's a lot of things that can muck up people's sleep. And it's important to help people recognize that and so they can figure out what's going on for them and they can figure out all of the things that they may need to address. Reassure the person that they have control and don't have to answer questions and can stop the screening at any time. And provide informed consent about the purpose of the screening, who will have access to the information, and how it will be used. Now, a lot of times, screenings are just kind of that. They, they do it, and then the screening tool goes away. Um, but if you're doing it within a school setting or a hospital or a clinic, then that may go into their file. So they do need to have an informed consent. Screening areas. We want to screen for depressive, dissociative, or intrusive symptoms, sleep disturbances, past and present mental health issues or symptoms, substance abuse, their social support and their coping styles, the availability of resources, including safe housing, nutrition, and medical care, and health screenings. We need to figure out what tools, strengths, and resources the person has, as well as what issues do they have going on that are keeping them from having their highest quality of life, and is it related to trauma? In any screening, include questions about a history of trauma. Use a checklist to increase proper identification of such a history. There is a online adverse childhood experiences study score calculator, that's a mouthful, um, at acestudy.org. And you can also gather information about the severity or characteristics of a specific type of trauma. Now, we're not going down into the details. We're not getting into the weeds, but medical trauma is kind of broad. If they say, for example, that they went into the hospital to um, have a baby and things went terribly wrong and then they came out and they had had a total hysterectomy, you know, that's traumatic. They felt powerless and had no control. We don't need the super details of it, but in general, you know, what was the medical trauma about or what was the natural disaster? Was it a hurricane, a tornado, fire? You know, help me understand a little bit about what was going on. Discussing the occurrence or consequences of traumatic events can feel as unsafe and dangerous as if the event were reoccurring. It can't. You can feel like you're back there. Initial questions about trauma should be general and gradual. Don't just jump right in there and say, all right, tell me about whether you have a history of sexual abuse. Oh my gosh. You know? Back up a little bit. That's, that's kind of invasive. So we need to be general, gradual, and help the person, again, feel respected and safe. We need to provide support and empowerment. Now, there's a fine line here. We don't want to encourage avoidance of the topic or reinforce the belief that discussing trauma-related material is dangerous, but we want to respect boundaries. We want to help them recognize what is safe to discuss right now without having the benefit of, you know, a bunch of tools. Um, and that it, it doesn't, that trauma work can be done in a way that is not re-traumatizing. By going over answers about trauma with the client, like the temporal relationship of the trauma to, to the symptoms. You had this trauma when you were 14 and this symptom developed six months later. Okay, there might be a connection. Or you had this you know, chaotic childhood growing up and you developed these symptoms in, in adulthood. Okay, let's look and see if there might be a connection. You can gain insight into the potential function of behaviors and issues underlying the symptoms. Behavior is communication. Examine the behaviors from a survival or a functional standpoint. In what way did those behaviors help that person survive until now? Don't require people to describe emotionally overwhelming traumatic events in detail. I know I've said that like six times, but it's so important because too often people really want to get down into the nitty gritty and that's not helpful. 
even during an assessment, that's often not helpful. Trauma processing should be done as a part of therapy, not an assessment. Focus assessments on how trauma symptoms are affecting the person's current functioning. How is your hypervigilance impacting you right now? How is, are your sleep disturbances impacting you right now? When people screen positive for trauma, also screen for suicidal thoughts and behaviors because they unfortunately often go hand in hand. And then after the screening, reiterate how you will use the findings to make referrals, discuss any immediate action necessary, such as arranging for interpersonal support, referrals to community agencies, or moving directly into the active phase of treatment. Now, obviously, if they don't want to go to treatment, that's a non-starter. But we want to make sure we don't go, okay, well, thanks for screening. Have a good day. It's like, what was the purpose of that? Make sure they feel in the know and empowered and supported. If the screening ended up being emotionally charged for the person, we want to make sure that they've got somebody to pick them up or they've got a safe place to be once they leave the facility, whatever the facility is. If you're seeing the person for medical addiction or criminal justice related issues, screen for a history of exposure to trauma and for psychological symptoms and mental disorders related to the trauma. Be aware that some people are not going to make the connection between trauma in their histories and their current patterns of behavior, even if you try to spell it out for them, they don't want to hear it. They may not make the connection. They may not want to hear it. They may disagree. That is okay. That is their right. And we need to respect their boundaries. Make sure the person is grounded and safe before leaving. Readiness to leave can be assessed by checking on the degree to which the person is conscious of the current environment what their plan is for maintaining personal safety and their plans for the rest of the day. You know, get them out of their head and into the moment. It's helpful too to explore the strategies people have used in the past that have worked to help relieve strong emotions. Grounding techniques can be really helpful. Asking the person to describe what they observe. Saying something like, you seem to feel very scared or angry right now. This may be related to the things that happened to you in the past, but you're safe right now. So let's see if we can stay in the present and then talk about taking a slow, deep breath, relaxing their shoulders, put their feet on the floor. Tell me what day and time it is. Describe what's on the wall. You don't have to do all of those. Those are just different suggestions. One thing in the tip that I don't use and I don't recommend using, but take it for what you will. Another thing they ask is what else can you do to feel okay in your body right now? And people who've experienced sexual abuse, that may be extraordinarily triggering. So I don't encourage them to go there necessarily. Help them decrease the intensity of their emotions or of their affect using an emotional dial, like turning down the volume of their emotions or clenching their fists and then releasing it. So they're feeling that anger release out their fingertips. Using guided imagery to help them visualize a safe space or just using strengths-based questions. Tell me about all of the things that have helped you survive until now. Temporarily help them distract from unbearable emotional states. We want to help them get into their wise mind. This is not meant to avoid dealing with it because remember those feelings aren't dangerous, but they may need to get grounded. They may need to uh, get into their wise mind a little bit so they don't feel like they're so awash in stress hormones. Have the person focus on the external environment, like five things that they see in the room. Have them focus on recent or future events. What did you do this morning or what are you doing this afternoon? Have them use self-talk to remind them of their own current safety. They can use techniques like counting or singing a favorite song to get into the present focus. 
And they can use somatosensory techniques like toe wiggling or noticing how it feels to touch a chair. They can also use breathing techniques. Now, a lot of people who've experienced trauma, when they use square breathing, that slow, deep breathing, they may dissociate because that's what they used to do. So if they're willing to do the slow, deep breathing, one way to help them not dissociate is to have them combine that with noticing. So as they inhale, they notice one thing in the room that's green. As they exhale, they notice something else. Ongoing screening and assessment lets providers track changes in the presence, frequency, and intensity of symptoms. Learn the relationship between the client's trauma, presenting psychological and physical symptoms, and substance use. Adjust diagnoses and treatment plans as needed, and select prevention strategies to avoid more pervasive traumatic stress symptoms. So it's important that whatever situation you're in, that there is this ongoing screening to um, make sure that things aren't getting worse and make sure that something else hasn't developed. Barriers and challenges. It is not necessarily easy or obvious to identify an individual who survived trauma without screening. A history of trauma encompasses the experience of a potentially traumatic event, the person's responses to it, and the meanings attached to it. Some people may deny that they've encountered trauma and its effects even after being screened, and again, that's okay. The two main barriers to the evaluation of trauma and its related issues are providers overlooking trauma and its effects or not being aware of them, and people not reporting trauma. So why wouldn't they report? Some events will be experienced as traumatic by one person, but considered non-traumatic or run-of-the-mill by another. They may not report because they're, they have a concern for their safety if they do report. They may fear being judged. They may be carrying a great deal of shame. They may have reticence about talking with others in response to the trauma. They may have tried to talk about it before and they got re-traumatized. And they may not recall a past trauma because they've dissociated, denied, or repressed it. Although the research indicates that blockage of all trauma-related memories is really rare. Uh, but there are probably gaps in their knowledge. They also may not report because they don't trust you. That's their right. They may feel reluctant to discuss something that might bring up uncomfortable feelings because they they're not sure if they can shut it down if they open it up. Or you may get to this point in the screening or the assessment and they're just tired of being asked to fill out forms and they don't believe it matters anyway. Think about intakes in social services, for example, where there are multiple different stops or stations that a person has to go through, and then they get to the behavioral health clinician sort of at the end, and they're just like, really? I just want to go home. Now, providers also may not screen for trauma. We may not screen for trauma because we have a re reluctance to inquire about traumatic events and symptoms because these questions are not part of our program, uh, our, our program's standard intake. If it's not part of your paperwork, you may not think to or want to go there. Clinicians may underestimate the impact of trauma on people's physical and mental health. They may have a belief that treatment should focus solely on presenting symptoms rather than exploring the potential origins or aggravators of those symptoms. They may have a lack of training and or feelings of incompetence in effectively treating trauma-related problems. They're afraid if they start asking about it, they're not going to be able to figure out what to do with it. They may not know how to respond therapeutically to a person's report of trauma. They may fear that a probing trauma inquiry will be too disturbing to the person. Well, yeah, it will be. Don't be probing. Ask those gentle, general questions. Leave the details for therapy. 
Not using common language with people that will elicit a report of trauma is another issue that may block. A concern on the provider's part that if disorders are identified, people will require treatment that the person or program doesn't feel capable of providing. So if I identify trauma may exist and I think you need EMDR, but we don't provide it at this organization, you know, do I screen and then refer out? Do I screen and just ignore it? No, don't ignore it. You know, it is ethical to refer out. There may be insufficient time for assessment to explore trauma histories or symptoms. That's an organizational issue. And providers may not screen because they have their own untreated trauma-related issues and they don't really want to go there. General instruments to evaluate mental disorders are not sufficiently sensitive to differentiate PTSD symptoms and often misclassify them as other disorders. Intrusive PTSD symptoms can show up on general measures as hallucinations or even obsessions. Dissociative symptoms may be misinterpreted as schizophrenia. Trauma-based cognitive symptoms may be scored as evidence for paranoia or other delusional processes. And overlapping symptoms with mood and anxiety disorders uh, can also lead to a misdiagnosis or an underdiagnosis. And as I mentioned earlier, I know we're running short on time, um, the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and borderline personality disorder have a bunch of symptoms that overlap, especially with complex PTSD. So it's important that we de determine are the person's symptoms adequately and fully explained through CPTSD or do they also have other symptoms that aren't accounted for? Antisocial personality disorder and even narcissistic personality disorder were also mentioned in the tip as also potentially being a uh, survival, a set of survival behaviors that developed in response to trauma. In terms of culture and trauma, cultural factors such as norms for expressing psychological distress, defining trauma, and seeking help in dealing with trauma can affect how the person experiences trauma, the meaning they assign to the events, how their symptoms are expressed, whether it's through their body experience or their level of emotionality, their willingness to express distress or identify trauma to providers. You know, do you even talk about it? Do you air that dirty laundry? Whether a specific pattern of behavior, emotional expression, or cognitive process is considered abnormal. Their willingness to seek treatment inside and outside of their own culture and their outcome or response to treatment. Treatment needs to be culturally responsive and culturally sensitive. There are certain culture-bound symptoms like attaques de nervios that includes intense, um, intense emotional upset in response to a traumatic or stressful event in the family. We need to see that and recognize that as a culture-bound symptom. Nervios includes a wide range of emotional distress symptoms, including headaches, nervousness, tearfulness, stomach discomfort, difficulty sleeping, and dizziness in response to stressful or difficult life events. And susto is a term meaning fright and is attributed to traumatic or frightening events that cause the soul to leave the body, thus resulting in illness and unhappiness, and in extreme cases may result in death. Symptoms include appetite or sleep disturbances, sadness, low motivation, low self-esteem, and physical symptoms. So we need to understand what these are um, if the person comes from a culture that embraces these particular uh, syndromes. In terms of organizational things that we can do, as an organization, we need to demonstrate a commitment to trauma-informed care, trauma-informed awareness, whether you're a um, spirit, faith-based organization or a clinical uh, organization or even a school. We need to promote trauma awareness and understanding in self, staff, and community. 
and develop strategies to address secondary trauma and promote self-care in the people that work in these places. In terms of screening and assessment, we need to incorporate universal, routine, trauma-informed screenings for mood disorders, pain, sleep disorders, physiological imbalances like hormones and nutrition, as well as trauma. Familiarize the person with trauma-informed services and the impact of trauma can be helpful just to let people know, even if they're not experiencing it, maybe they have a loved one who is. And create a safe environment supportive of control, collaboration, choice, and autonomy to minimize the risk of re-traumatization or replicating prior trauma dynamics. We need to view trauma in the context of the individual's characteristics, like their age and their environment, and view it through a sociocultural lens, recognizing that symptoms and behaviors may be possible adaptations to traumatic experiences. They may not be, but they may be. So let's not pathologize a survival behavior. We need to view physical symptoms as a possible result of trauma that led to HPA, HPG, or HPT axis disruption, sleep disorders, or autoimmune issues. And finally, we need to identify recovery from trauma as a primary goal and use a strengths-focused perspective to promote resilience and foster trauma-resistant skills, providing hope that recovery is possible. <laughs>